Thinking Aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is the end of all things. My guest is Jason Reza Giorgiani. In fact, this is the 36th interview with Jason Reza Giorgiani on the New Thinking Aloud channel. Jason is a philosopher. He is author of Prometheus and Atlas, World State of Emergency, Lovers of Sophia, Novel Folklore, Iranian Leviathan, and most recently, Prometheism. Once again, this is an Internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the Internet video. Welcome, Jason. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Incidentally, I counted. This is our 36th interview. Is it? Wow. Well, thank you for all of these opportunities, Jeff. They've all been wonderful, and I'm very happy to be back with you again. In our previous discussion, we talked about the singularity and how uh, just as with the Big Bang, things can change so radically that uh, it's impossible to know from where we are now what things are going to be like on the other side of the singularity. Yes, uh, and in uh, my new book, Prometheism, I describe the technological singularity in terms of three uh, basic aspects, um, three elemental dimensions to this singular phenomenon. And one is the end of humanity, the other is the end of history, and the third and final is the end of reality. So these three ends uh, of humanity, history, and reality, to me, uh, demarcate you know, the, the basic dimensions of this technological singularity and the ways in which it uh, threatens to um, reshape the, the, the uh, basic parameters of our existence but also offers us an opportunity for a revolutionary evolution into a post-human condition. Well, I know the uh, great science fiction writer Olaf Stapledon in his novel The Star Maker proposes that, uh, or envisions might be a better way to say it, uh, humanity uh, goes through maybe six or seven evolutionary jumps in, in the course of the next, let's say, billion years. I think that vision was extremely bold, daring, and um, it was uh, way beyond the limitations of thinking of most of his contemporaries, and, and is definitely praiseworthy on that account. But uh, in the many decades since that work was written, I think there is a greater appreciation of the uh, speed with which this singularity is approaching. And, you know, the very idea of the technological singularity is one of exponential acceleration. So I don't think it will take any, anything like, you know, um, tens of millions, let alone hundreds of millions of years or a billion years, for a very radical evolution of humanity to take place. In fact, as I recall, you're suggesting that, uh, and many people are suggesting, I know not just you, that the technological singularity uh, is within the next 30 years or so. That's right. I uh, differ with uh, Ray Kurzweil and his uh, associates 
in a lot of respects, um, particularly uh, with a view to their reductionism. But I do agree with them on the time frame. And, you know, as we discuss some of these uh, technological breakthroughs that promise to uh, bring about the singularity, I think it will become clearer why uh, I do agree with them that we have about a generation. We have 30 years until um, we enter the singularity. Unless, of course, certain things are done uh, to catastrophically slow the pace of technological progress. Well, uh, why don't we start, though, with uh, some of the uh, more immediate uh, technological advances that uh, portend the singularity. For example, um, genetic engineering, artificial intelligence. Yeah, so if we begin with uh, the idea of the end of humanity, there are really four technologies that are involved there. Um, the tech community has... Uh, branded this GRIN, Genetics, Robotics, Information, and Nanotechnology. We can more or less discuss those in that order. Um, to begin with genetics, you know, recently with, with the advent of CRISPR, uh, which allows for gene editing um, on, a, on a much more personal and privatized basis than former platforms for genetic engineering, former techniques for genetic engineering, it will be possible uh, especially with, with the recent breakthroughs in gene sequencing, it will be possible to uh, extend human lifespan, uh, boost IQ, in other words, mathematical and spatial reasoning, increase memory capacity by several times, um, eliminate all hereditary diseases by doing CRISPR on uh, the, uh, you know, uh, using CRISPR to edit the human germline, and uh, boost the immune system, uh, as well as enhanced muscle mass. And, you know, the, the genetic correlates of all of these human characteristics have, have basically been identified, and this kind of gene editing has been done on an experimental basis on mice, uh, you know, and, and other animals that, uh, you know, ha have um, demonstrated in the laboratory that it would be possible to apply the same techniques successfully to humans. So I think that, you know, there are a lot of positive potentials on offer from something like CRISPR uh, if it's not overly regulated. And if it's, you know, prohibitively regulated in the United States, it certainly won't be in places like China or Singapore. And so we're going to see, you know, in very short order, um, you know, human lifespan, in intelligence, memory, uh, disease resistance, and muscle mass and so forth enhanced through the use of genetic engineering. I've been in touch with people who believe they can apply genetic engineering to creating states of consciousness equivalent to well, what the Buddhists and, and other Eastern traditions think of as enlightenment. Yeah, I would be very skeptical of that. Um, I think it's possible that certain uh, cognitive structures are, you know, uh, are more inclined toward being uh, conditioned by various meditation techniques that might transform consciousness. But there, I think, it's, it's an overestimation of the genetic component involved in something like that. I don't think that there's a, uh, you know, a gene editing uh, fix to uh, the expansion of consciousness, I, you know. And I think that uh, we need to be very uh, wary of... Um, 
you know, equating intelligence in all senses with IQ, because IQ is really just a question of mathematical and spatial reasoning. There are other forms of intelligence and creativity that we don't understand the genetic correlates of. And so one thing we have to be, be careful not to do is to uh, imbalance the human cognitive structure so that you wind up with people who have God knows, you know, 240 IQs, but they have uh, extremely serious personality issues. Uh, because we've, we've imbalanced the various facets of the human personality by too rapidly in, increasing mathematical and spatial reasoning. So, you know, these are uh, things that we do have to be cautious of, but I don't think they're grounds for uh, prohibitively restricting, you know, access to these technologies. Another critique, uh, which I imagine you're going to be up against, is simply uh, the history of uh, developments like an artificial intelligence, or another one would be nuclear fusion, where for decades, uh, researchers, researchers in these areas have promised enormous breakthroughs, and, uh, you know, there has been progress, but it's been very incremental, very slow. Uh, artificial intelligence has, has had nowhere near the, the kind of big breakthroughs that were promised 50 years ago. Well, we'll get there. Um, you know, I don't want to jump immediately to artificial intelligence, uh, but I can tell you that in terms of genetic engineering, the breakthrough that was made with CRISPR technology is really revolutionary. And so I, I, it's really a question of implementation. At this point, the technology is already there to um, gene edit and enhance all of those facets of human uh, personality and phenotype that I was suggesting uh, could be modified earlier. Um, but, you know, there are also some very threatening implications of that because the same technology would allow us to splice human and animal genes, and one could see how that would be uh, alluring to, uh, you know, certain governments, um, corporations, uh, people in the military, to, for example, uh, edit out the, the genes that are, or turn off the genes that are responsible for uh, fear in high-stress situations, um, suppress pain receptors so that you wind up with super soldiers who have less of a fear response and who don't feel p physical pain, uh, and so they can sustain damage to their bodies and keep fighting. Uh, you could have... Um, Genes from other animals, like, for example, the antifreeze gene in certain frogs who uh, freeze inside lakes and then uh, have their heartbeat come back online, you know, uh, as the ice thaws. You could have that kind of antifreeze gene sliced into the human genome to make it possible for workers to survive in, in polar or, you know, Antarctic conditions. Uh, to, say, mine the oil resources that are underneath the Antarctic ice sheet. So there are all kinds of ways that, you know, the human being could be degraded uh, and dehumanized by uh, gene splicing that uh, creates chimeras or that uh, instrumentalizes the human being in certain ways. You know, it's even possible to create a more docile person by modifying certain genetic correlates of personality and one can imagine how uh, totalitarian governments and collectivist societies would want to do that. So, you know, this is a very serious challenge that we face, and therefore it matters very much which society with what, uh, you know, ethical framework takes the lead in uh, bringing these technologies into the public and setting the standard for how they're going to be used. Yeah, because you're suggesting, on the one hand, that 
there ought not to be too much regulation. And on the other hand, some things definitely need to be regulated. Um, that's the case. And let's continue to explore that, say, in terms of robotics. Uh, you know, you were talking earlier about promises that have been made and, you know, that you know, by the tech community and how they have uh, the, the reality of development has fallen far short of those promises. You know, we were all promised uh, robot domestic servants uh, from the 1960s onward. This was a staple of American popular culture in all kinds of science fiction films and, you know, uh, cartoons like the Jetsons and so forth. Uh, and it hasn't happened. But there have been certain recent breakthroughs in robotics research that suggest that within the next 20 to 30 years, we are going to see a proliferation of extremely competent robots. And particularly the breakthrough that was made was, you know, the, the idea that it's a mistake to immediately attempt to model a robot on a human being. To, to use human morphology as the model for building a robot. Instead, it was decided that roboticists should focus on engineering simple insects and allowing them to develop evolutionary algorithms themselves by navigating the environment and successfully grappling with various obstacles and then uh, improving upon themselves generation after generation so that you have something like an evolutionary trajectory, an evolutionary ladder within robotics research and development, from uh, the level of primitive insect robots all the way up to ro robotic dogs and, you know, uh, the equivalent of, of uh, you know, uh, non-human animals in the, in the robot domain. And then on the other hand, you would develop expert systems, weak AIs, uh, that are capable of various uh, analytical tasks, and eventually you would fuse the expert systems with these um, robotic insects, these, these non-humanoid robots that you've uh, allowed to pursue their own evolutionary course. And from out of that, you'll get some hybrid that doesn't necessarily look like a human being or walk like a human being, but it's very effective at navigating the environment and capable, basically, of any uh, routine analytical task. And, you know, that uh, revision of the paradigm for robotics research took place about 20 years ago and has been yielding dramatic advances to the point where I think it's very likely that in the next maybe even 15 years, uh, you will see a, a, uh, the potential, at least, to completely automate industry and to replace all forms of human drudgery with robotics. Any form of labor that could be considered drudgery, uh, you know, an uncreative, job that involves uh, repetitive and routine tasks can be replaced either by a robot or by an expert system or some combination thereof. And this total automation of industry uh, offers us the possibility of uh, pursuing careers that are entirely creative and more of an expression of our personality and of our, uh, of our own aims and ambitions. Uh, so it, it promises in a positive sense to eliminate drudgery from human life, but it also faces us with the most catastrophic unemployment crisis imaginable and within a time frame that is so near term that uh, it would really be impossible to re-educate or retrain people um, so that we don't wind up with, you know, tens and tens of millions of unemployed uh, individuals in the, in the developed world um, once this automation capability comes online. 
Well, it seems to me that it, it sort of dovetails into the problem of overpopulation that we have on this planet right now that I believe uh, we have. Our environment is being degraded uh, largely, I think, because of overpopulation. Yeah, well, maybe we should terraform Mars and start settling that planet, you know? Uh, there, there are also the oceans. Whatever happened to the promises that we were going to build cities underneath the oceans? Seventy percent of this planet is covered by uh, oceans and seas. And, um, you know, I, I don't see why that hasn't been, uh, you know, that, that hasn't been pursued, that project of colonizing the oceans, building cities into the continental shelves and so forth. And I hope that that, that does happen. There are a lot of resources under the oceans. <laughs> That's interesting. And I don't want to get too far off topic, but since you mentioned the ocean, I've recently heard that the ocean is completely polluted. There isn't a, a creature in the ocean right now that doesn't have plastic in their body be, from all the plastics we're dumping. Well, this is a dangerous proposition, what I'm about to say, but it brings us into another area that I wanted to discuss, and that's nanotechnology. You know, it, it might be possible to use nanotechnology to clean the oceans uh, because nanobots can transform material on a molecular level. They're basically molecular-scale robots who can go in and restructure, um, you know, uh, any form of matter, organic or inorganic, on a, on a cellular level. And so it would be possible to basically send nanobots into the ocean to swarm various types of, of pollutants and uh, eliminate them or transform them. Um, now, of course, that, that, you know, comes with various potential dangers, uh, which, which are dangers that we face in general by, um, you know, introducing nanotechnology into society. So this is another uh, subject that I wanted to discuss, GRIN, genetics, robotics, information, and nanotechnology. When we consider the robotics revolution, we have to also remember that uh, nanobots are robots. Molecular-scale robots will contribute to the total automation of industry. And you can imagine, in the not-too-distant future, a situation where, instead of 3D printers that work with the kinds of uh, materials that you, the kind of feedstock that you, uh, you use to print with, with 3D printers today, these 3D printers of the near future will be nanomolecular assembly machines. And People will have these in their own homes. And so it will be possible to industrially manufacture objects inside your own home. Uh, so there's a kind of de decentralization, not only automation of industry, but a decentralization of industry that could take place there, where you basically buy designs for objects. What, what you're buying is not an object. You buy a design for an object, and your uh, nanotech uh, molecular assembler prints it out for you at home. Um, but, of course, you know, this comes with all kinds of dangers, everything from people printing weapons uh, nanotechnologically in their own homes to the most extreme scenario, which is that, you know, we could see the equivalent of a computer virus inside nanotechnology uh, where the molecular robots get out of control or they come under the control of a hacker and they begin to ravage the environment, including, you know, human organisms in the environment, uh, in, in ways that are catastrophic. And this is referred to, I believe, for the first time by Eric Drexler in his book, Engines of Creation, as the gray goo scenario, the, you know, degradation of everything in our environment, including ourselves, 
on a molecular level on account of, uh, you know, monstrous runaway nanotech, nanotech, nanobots. So, you know, uh, this is, again, a, a danger that we face in the very near term. The idea of nanobots, I think the way you're expressing it is that there would be billions of these put into the environment and, and somehow they would be controlled, I imagine, through some sort of uh, radio technology. That's right. And uh, they're programmable, um, wirelessly programmable. And the, the, the potential here for creation is immense. I mean, you could have, for example office buildings where the design of the interior of the building on each floor changes every day because the walls are made out of nanobots. And so the architectural design of that space could be shifted on a daily basis or hourly basis, whatever. So it, it and you know, you can have sculptures built out of these nanobots that are transformer sculptures, basically. They're, they're able to shape shift. So there are tremendous creative potentials here. And, again, they promise a, a total automation and decentralization of, of industrial manufacturing. But, you know, they, they also threaten us with, you know, very serious uh, uh, environmental and human catastrophes. I can imagine they could be very useful in medicine, but they would also have the uh, potential to be very harmful to our biological system if, if they were programmed that way. Well, well exactly. So, for example, uh, you could basically perform any surgery with far greater efficacy than is possible for a human surgeon using nanobots. I mean, they can go in and repair uh, arteries and carry out uh, surgery on brain cancer patients where they're working in sensitive areas of the brain or nervous system, uh, areas where, you know, a human surgeon would be afraid of causing serious uh, unintended damage. And so the, the promise that they afford us, particularly in the medical field, is immense. Uh, whatever we can't cure through gene therapy probably can be cured through molecular nanotechnology. But by the same token, uh, you know, you could have drone robots manufactured using nanotechnology that are on the scale of a mosquito, and they could be programmed to swarm somebody and assassinate them. Uh, and, you know, this would be basically an untraceable crime. So once you have this technology proliferating in the public, and remember, again, it would be these would be devices that you could print in your own home. Uh, so anyone could, could basically develop these nanobots and use them for any purpose they so choose. So the threats to personal integrity and, and uh, security and safety, public safety, are immense. Not to mention the threat to privacy. It offers us the possibility for ubiquitous surveillance. I mean, just imagine if you had, um, you know, drone insects engineered on a nanotechnological scale with small cameras in them and listening devices, you could basically surveil anyone anywhere at any time. Uh, and not to mention that, you know, uh, with the proliferation of smart surfaces where tabletops and walls and so forth, and people's homes 
are going to be able to turn into screens in the very near future because they're designed using nanotechnology and what uh, at one moment is a tabletop that you can eat dinner on in another moment turns into a screen and you can have any environment projected around you on the walls of your home, those surfaces are also nanotechnological and could be used to surveil somebody. A wall that, you know, affords you, uh, you know, a, a mountain landscape around your home can also, the vista of a, of a, you know, being in the mountains around your home can also become a two-way screen that um, is used as a surveillance device. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's the ultimate threat to personal security and safety and privacy, uh, and it's a threat that we're going to face again, I believe, within the next 20 to 30 years. Well, how how much progress has been made uh, to date in nanotechnology? I'm really not aware uh, of, of it the way I'm aware of artificial intelligence or robotics or genetic engineering. I think it's moving pretty fast. Um, you know, they, at research institutions like Carnegie Mellon, they are uh, right now already able to move um, uh, matter on, a, on an atom-by-atom basis. So, you know, uh, I think it's, it's happening fairly quickly. And the other thing you have to remember is that all of these technologies are convergent and mutually reinforcing. So the, the greater the breakthroughs we make in artificial intelligence, for example, and, you know, regular computer processing power, the more uh, effective nanotechnology or, for that matter, uh, genetic engineering are going to become because we'll be able to draw on an analytical capacity that's far greater than that of the human engineers involved in these projects. So all of these technologies are also mutually reinforcing. Once we have robots, not nanobots, but robots involved in industrial manufacture, there will also probably be, uh, you know, uh, more breakthroughs at, at a faster pace in uh, nanotechnological engineering. The idea of the singularity, as you've described it earlier, is is a little different because right now we're talking about things that we can imagine, things that we can project. But uh, the idea of the singularity is there's going to be a point beyond which we will be incapable of even imagining what it's going to be like. Yeah, and in a way that brings us to the idea of the end of history. We've been talking about, you know, potentially... Uh, catastrophically dehumanizing technologies, but ones that also offer us the potential to evolve into superhuman beings. So we've been talking in terms of the end of humanity. But uh, where the idea of the singularity comes into greater focus is with, with this uh, concept of the end of history. And, you know, the idea of the end of history throughout the philosophical tradition uh, has been employed by people like uh, Georg Hegel, uh, Karl Marx, um, and even Friedrich Nietzsche. And going back to Hegel, what the end of history meant to him was that, you know, there are successive epochs in the course of human history, and the transition between these epochs involves uh, dialectical tensions between uh, various ideas and uh, um, methodologies and forms of social organization where the internal tension uh, in, in each system yields to a resolution that uh, pushes into a new form of organization. So dialectical tension leads to a resolution that uh, represents a transformation into a new state. 
and he, he calls this sublation, alcohol and sublation. It's a kind of mechanism of dialectics that you see um, in everything from scientific theory to uh, sociopolitical organization, and it's responsible both for what later on Thomas Kuhn calls paradigm shifts and also for social and political revolutions. And Hegel was basically describing the evolution of consciousness uh, over the course of history up to a point where humanity attains a full self-consciousness. Um, and uh, uh, to, to compare for a moment Hegel to Jung, it would be the moment where um, we have uh, become fully actualized and uh, come face-to-face -face with our shadow and fully integrated it. And where, on a social scale, uh, the collective unconscious has been made conscious to humanity as a whole. And this is how uh, Hegel saw the end of history, um, the end of the history of spirit or of the evolution of consciousness. Marx reframed the end of history thesis in terms of uh, changes in the uh, changes in the modes of production, and he took a much more materialistic approach to understanding how uh, power structures and political systems and uh, various uh, forms of social organization transform over time, with a, with a uh, particular emphasis on economy and industry. And uh, one of the points that I just want to make while I mention Marx and his adaptation of Hegel's thought in a more materialist direction, is that when Marx is describing the internal dynamics of capitalism and suggesting that capitalism is ultimately going to yield a communist world society from out of its own internal tensions, uh, the, the moment that he's describing is a moment that's relevant to the most advanced industrial capitalist societies. It was never intended to be applied in an agrarian feudal society like, you know, Russia at the time of Lenin or China at the time of Mao. And so I would suggest that um, Marx's analysis of capitalism is still relevant today as we enter this hyper-capitalist stage that's bringing us into the technological singularity, that by no means is Marx's analysis uh, irrelevant because we saw the collapse, say, of the Soviet Union or because China has transitioned from communism into some kind of a uh, national socialism. I, I think that actually Marx's analysis um, is, is all the more relevant today and that in a way... Uh, when he was envisioning the overcoming of all forms of alienation and, you know, the, the, um, the overcoming of, of the, the alienation of the laborer from the products of his labor, he was describing the kind of state we might wind up in after the technological singularity. Uh, so, you know, it's possible that, that this hyper-capitalism that yields the technological singularity will bring about that communist end of history that Marx himself dreamed of. And it's worth noting in that respect that, you know, Marx uh, saw Prometheus as uh, the champion of humanity and considered Prometheus to be his personal sacred ideal. So his vision of a communist world society where the individual would, would sort of be liberated to pursue uh, projects that uh, 
give uh, her own life meaning and no longer be a tool of alienating industrial productive forces uh, is, is a vision for a Promethean world society. As I recall, Marx uh, even had uh, a sort of a spiritualist, uh, not spiritualist, spiritual ideal for uh, this end of history. It would be a, a time of spiritual cultivation. Yes, I mean, the idea is that once, you know, people uh, are no longer crushed by uh, this, you know, alienating, uh, mechanizing force of, of uh, corporate industry, uh, they will be liberated to pursue those projects that they believe will give their own lives meaning. And so I, I think really, I mean, Marx was envisioning a hyper-creative society like, you know, the vision of the late 1960s in, in America. Uh, that, he wasn't envisioning anything like status Stalinism or Maoism. In any case, I thought that would be worth mentioning in terms of the concept of the end of history and the promise of the technological singularity in a positive sense. Nietzsche also uh, develops this idea of the end of history, and he critiques um, some of the utopianism in Hegel and Marx uh, with the suggestion that as we approach this uh, global network of uh, industrial mechanization, which is something that Nietzsche does describe in his uh, notes for the book The Will to Power, his uncompleted book The Will to Power, Nietzsche does very clearly describe this uh, global networked um, machine that encompasses all of human life. And he says that as we approach that moment, there's going to be a bifurcation of humanity where certain people who become increasingly dehumanized by these machines and by uh, mediums of communication that, that uh, uh, tempt them to relinquish personal responsibility, certain people will degrade and degenerate into subhumans, untermenschen, or what he calls the last man, people who are just, uh, you know, constantly mesmerized by entertainment, who have no uh, higher aims or goals in life, and who, whose individuality is completely submerged in a kind of uh, coll collective uh, mindset, collectivist mindset or mass uh, unconsciousness, a herd mentality. And so he saw a bifurcation between the last man or the untermenschen, subhumans on the one hand, and the ubermensch or uh, the supermen on the other hand. And the supermen would be a kind of aristocracy defined not by wealth, but by creative vision, uh, the complexity of thought, the capacity to continue to set aims and goals that are that offer a transcendent meaning uh, to human life. And he saw these as the people who would not only be able to resist the worst temptations of this global instrumentalizing techno technology and machinery, but people who could harness that productive force and direct it in a way that will lead to a further evolution rather than a degeneration. And so basically this is a vision of the speciation of humanity. And, and Nietzsche suggests that the Untermensch and the subhumans will eventually just be transformed into robots or replaced by them. And there will be a, a production base for the projects of the superman. 
which in an interesting way is similar to the vision of H.G. Wells and the time machine, where you have this bifurcation of human society into the Eloi and the Morlocks. The Eloi being the uh, uh, sort of aesthetic uh, elites. And uh, as I recall, in H.G. Wells, the Morlocks who live underground and are somewhat subhuman uh, devour the Eloi. Well, you might get renegade robots as well, <laughs> simply because the Untermenschen become a race of robots doesn't mean that they're going to be satisfied with that necessarily, right? I mean, uh, we've seen these, these scenarios of uh, robotic rebellion against humanity uh, in numerous science fiction uh, films and television and so forth. One of the best examples is Battlestar Galactica, where the Cylons were engineered as a race of robots to serve humanity, but then ultimately they rebelled and sought to evolve themselves into um, a, a you know cybernetic species that would be superior to humanity in terms of creativity and uh, you know uh, level of consciousness. So, but you know, I mentioned the time machine, H.G. Wells, and the time machine, and so I think in terms of technology, the technology that's most central to the idea of the end of history, in particular, is time travel, time travel technology, and um, so you know, I think that. The Superman is superior to humanity also in the sense that if we were to achieve the, the capability of time travel, we would wind up inhabiting a kind of hyper-dimensional space, a sort of fifth dimension, with respect to which uh, various 4D space-times are topological. We would have a kind of spatial or palatial relationship to various 4D uh, epochs uh, and eras from out of a, uh, you could say, loosely speaking, fifth dimensional reference frame. And so I think in a way that would be the, the um, level on which superhumanity or posthumanity would exist. And this calls into question uh, some of the most basic concepts of time in the history of philosophy. Um, like, for example, Heidegger's existential ontology and its conception of, uh, you know, each era or epoch having a, a horizon of possibility, a, a horizon that delimits what concepts it's possible to develop, what forms of social organization, uh, you know, can take shape. Heidegger thought that human existence is epochal in this sense, that it's bounded by certain eras. And, uh, that this kind of existential temporality that's structured in terms of epochs is more fundamental than chronological time, the kind of uh, chronological time that uh, scientists work with, you know, clock time. Um, but when you think in terms of, say, the clock time on a spaceship that's traveling at near the speed of light, uh, so that the astronauts who are journeying for several weeks away from the Earth at near the speed of light turn around and come back to a planet uh, where hundreds of years have elapsed in their absence, you have to question Heidegger's uh, analysis of temporality because what the spaceship going near the speed of light basically is, is a time machine that allows those uh, astronauts or cosmonauts to speed up time on the Earth as if they're fast-forwarding a video. And this just... It, it, it shreds the horizons that Heidegger's talking about in his existential ontology. It, because, you see, uh, for those astronauts, they are then no longer bound 
by the kind of epochs that Heidegger thought were fundamental, uh, were fundamental limits of human existence. If they can leave the Earth for a few weeks or a few months and then come back in an epoch far into the future from the one that was their own, uh, that means that they've blown out the existential horizon of time, as Heidegger would have understood it, uh, to be a boundary of their own existence. So I think that uh, Bernard Stiegler is right in, in Time and Technics when he says that there's a sense in which speed is ontologically prior to time in the sense that Heidegger was talking about time. Uh, time machines show us that speed, not in, in an analytically reductive sense, but the phenomenon of speed achieved through technology is somehow more fundamental is ontologically prior to time in the sense of historical epochs. And so the end of history is, in a way, that moment when you achieve the speed necessary to overcome time. And in mythological terms, you could think of this as a slaying of Saturn or a murdering of Kronos, the titanic god of time. Well, I think it's useful to mention that this idea of uh, when you approach the speed of light, that... Uh, uh, time changes, time drastically slows down, at least from the point of view of an outside observer. Uh, that idea is undisputed right now uh, in cosmology. That's right. And, you know, time travel to the past is a lot more controversial, but there's a lot to suggest that it's possible. You know, in other interviews, we have talked about uh, parapsychological phenomena that suggest that it is possible to travel backwards in time. Uh, remote viewing of the past with a kind of uh, fidelity that is basically equivalent to astral projection, where a person really uh, is, in, is entirely encompassed by uh, an environment in the past. They feel as if they are there. And when you combine that with psychokinesis, uh, you, you're basically dealing with a time traveler, with someone who has psychically traveled backwards in time and could potentially affect the course of events. There are also cases we've discussed um, where, you know, objects are found deep in the past of the archaeological record uh, that suggests that perhaps they were left there, you know, by people uh, who had somehow traveled to the past. Uh, some of these might be apports, but when you see human shoe prints um, in, in, you know, geological strata that are contemporaneous with the dinosaurs, you know, types of evidence that are used, I think, falsely uh, by creationists to argue that the world is only 5,000 years old. Um, when you see these kinds of pieces of evidence, I think it's more suggestive of time travel having taken place. And so if, if uh, you know, these... Um, these pieces of evidence from parapsychology or, you know, paranormal research are legitimate, uh, it, it suggests that at least it's ontologically possible to travel back in time. And then the question becomes, how can you build a machine that would do something like that? Uh, that's, that's very controversial, how you could send a human back in time, but there's at least been a breakthrough in terms of sending information back in time. There's a, a professor... Uh, Ronald Millette, who I believe is at the University of Connecticut, if I'm not mistaken, and he's designed a, a, a tunnel uh, where an array of intersecting laser beams that would be 
modulated in their firing pattern and intensity would sort of crunch space, would warp space in a way that also bends time. Uh, and he thinks it's possible to send quantum particles back through this tunnel so that once you were to turn on this time tunnel, you would be immediately confronted with particles that had been sent from the future, from, you know, the use of this machine in the future. And if you think in terms of quantum computers, you could encode information using quantum particles, and this would allow you to send data backwards in time. Now, imagine the implications of that for something like the economy. If someone could send, you know, the, the re a reading of the stock market, uh, however many years into the future, encoded on the level of a quantum particles backwards through this uh, tunnel of laser beams into the past, they could uh, give someone information that would be profoundly destabilizing to the economy. Likewise, with foreknowledge of, of um, uh, major geopolitical events and so forth. So, you know, it's possible that in the near term, we're going to be uh, grappling with uh, knowledge both of the future and of the past that could be significantly destabilizing to society and that tasks us with uh, assuming a degree of responsibility that is, is far beyond what we've had to bear uh, that's well, I think it's worth mentioning uh, for benefit of our viewers that we did do a lengthy previous interview on time travel. I'm going to link to it right now on the upper right-hand corner of your screen. I'll put a hot link if you'd like to see that video. It goes into a lot more detail about some of the things you've just been describing. But there's one other new piece of evidence that I, we haven't talked about. I'll just bring it up quickly, Jason, which is the uh, revelations uh, that have been published in the New York Times and elsewhere of naval um, radar tracking and video tracking of uh, vehicles. Uh, we don't know if they're extraterrestrial. I know you've suggested they might be from a breakaway civilization, but they have uh, capabilities vastly in excess of uh, any um, aerial vehicles uh, of our own military right now and suggests to me that the possibility of uh, travel uh, in space, for example, at speeds near the speed of light might be closer than we imagine because uh, I know just last week uh, Leslie Kane uh, who has been interviewed on this channel, has published an article in the New York Times indicating that uh, the, the U.S. military has uh, been investigating crashed vehicles and that there uh, would be an effort, if possible, to uh, uh, back engineer backwards this kind of technology so that it can be acquired by our uh, mainstream military institutions. Yes, I think that you know, Jacques Vallée was right when he suggested that UFOs are as much time machines um, as they are uh, space vehicles. And, you know, of course that makes sense because if you can manipulate the laws of physics on the level of uh, being able to travel faster than the speed of light or develop anti-gravity, uh, presumably you would also be able to um, travel in time or, or warp time. Uh, because the, you know, fabric of space-time is integrated. And so, you know, if you're traveling faster than light, then you're also able to, uh, defy linear time. 
And uh, Jacques Vallée, looking at the, you know, the history of close encounters going all the way back to antiquity, suggests that some of these um, fairies and elves and, you know, visitors from Magonia uh, uh, in medieval Europe and so forth uh, are probably time travelers from the human future. Um, and, you know, I mean, some of them may be from other planets, but there's a lot of reason to think that uh, these very human-looking individuals who contacted people in past societies and had significant effects on the development of religion and society are actually travelers from the human future, which, you know, brings us to the question of how it would be possible to change the past, because if, indeed, we have been not just contacted, but our history has been shaped by visitors from our future then, you know, these uh, visitors have changed history as compared to the timeline that they are from. So, you know, how do we make sense of that ontologically or metaphysically? How do we make sense of, the, you know, the, the apparent logical paradoxes, like the grandfather paradox, involved in time travel to the past and in changing the past? Um, so... I suggest in Prometheism, in my chapter on uh, the end of reality in Prometheism, that one way we can make sense out of uh, changing the past is to think of the cosmos as an information processing system where it's possible to uh, save past states of play the way that you do in computer games. So, you know, in computer games, in, in massively multiplayer online role-playing games, it is possible to save a certain state of play and then keep playing the game forward in one way and at some point in the future go back to the past saved state of play and play the game forward in another way. So you wind up with more than one version of the future from that saved moment onward. And... uh you know, you can flip back and forth between these alternate versions of reality. So, it may be that that's how our cosmos functions, that it's a gigantic information processing system uh, inside something analogous to a quantum computer that, in effect, you know, uh, David Bohm was right to think about the substrate of our cosmos as something like the interference patterns on a piece of holographic film where consciousness is like the laser beam that makes the hologram explicit and unfolds it from out of the implicate order that, uh, that involves a extremely high order of complexity, which on the face of it is chaos, but it's an extremely high order of complexity analogous to the interference patterns uh, on a piece of holographic film. And these are enfolded in, into... Uh, the perceptible world of objects around us uh, through consciousness. Or rather, I mean, Bohm's suggestion is that they're, they're in, unfolded or unpacked into the quantum world. So uh, he thinks that um, these apparent paradoxes in quantum theory, like wave-particle duality or um, the uh, quantum entanglement, the apparent transfer of information between quantum particles at a speed faster than light, you know, instantaneously, the, you know, the, uh, the coordination of the 
angles of polarization and quantum particles that had at one point been in interaction with each other as they become separate from each other over vast distances. He thinks that these kinds of paradoxes, quantum entanglement and, you know, how it is that a probability function collapses into a particular particle when it's measured, uh, are indicative of the fact that um, these uh, quantum entities, protons, neutrons, and so on and so forth, are actually akin to holograms being unfolded from out of this deeper implicate order by the analog to a laser beam in, in a, a holographic system, where consciousness or an observation is like the laser beam shining on the holographic film and enfolding these quantum particles, which are uh, not distinct in the way that they appear to be when you look at the holographic substrate of the universe. It seems from this discussion that we've talked about the end of humanity and the end of history, we're starting to get into the end of reality here. Yeah, and so my suggestion in Prometheism is that the more uh, virtual reality technology develops uh, from a situation where, you know, we have to enter uh, simulacra using contraptions like goggles um, or haptic gloves, the more we're able to uh, seamlessly enter virtual realities of a very high fidelity, like let's say through a direct neural interface, the more we will wonder whether we're already living inside some kind of simulacrum. And, you know, an argument's been made for this by, by Steve Bostrom at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford, where he has suggested that uh, it, you know, you, you can basically estimate the probability that we're living in a simulation in the following way. He thinks that uh, if you imagine a civilization, oh, I don't know, however much more advanced than we are, um, uh, that you would need to be to develop fully immersive simulations that are indistinguishable from reality, if you imagine such a civilization, uh, it would probably develop what he calls ancestor simulations. We have all these video games, um, massively multiplayer online games, that simulate ancient Greece or the Middle Ages or Rome, you know, past epochs of human history. And they would likely, these, these people in the future, would likely develop many such simulations of uh, their ancestors, of human beings in past epochs. Simulations that they could enter as avatars. And simulations in which, you know, artificial intelligences would arise. Um, so, Bostrom argues that it either has to be the case that um, every civilization destroys itself before reaching this level of technology, that there's a kind of cosmic filter where, you know, either through nuclear war or biological warfare, or, you know, simply because we're living in a shooting gallery of meteors and comets and so forth, every advanced civilization goes extinct before it develops the technology to build ancestor simulations. Or there's some strong ethical convergence across all civilizations in the cosmos not to use this technology to build ancestor simulations, even though they have developed it which uh, I think he considers very unlikely, and I agree with him, because if you look at every technological breakthrough we've made, we've used it in the most dangerous ways possible almost as soon as we've had it, you know, from the application of nuclear energy to the development of nuclear weapons, uh, from understanding, uh, you know, um, 
chemistry and biology to the development of chemical and biological weapons and so on and so forth. So I think it's highly unlikely that if we had this technology, we wouldn't use it. And so then his third proposition is, well, if even at least one civilization, and probably many more in the cosmos, develops this type of technology, they will use it to build many ancestor simulations. And then, by sheer probability alone, it's likely that we're in one of those simulations. Because, you know, there's only one, quote-unquote, reality, and there are many simulations of various epochs, and so the odds are that the world around us is one of those simulations and not the base reality of the programmers. So this is, uh, you know, one of the arguments that I engage with in the chapter on the end of reality in Prometheism. And uh, for benefit of our viewers, I point out once again that we've done a previous interview, a lengthier one, going over the uh, arguments and the evidence for virtual reality. So I'll link to that right now in the upper right-hand corner of your screen. If you haven't watched that video, it, it expands greatly on uh, the ideas you've just been uh, discussing. So... Between the uh, end of reality as we've come to understand it, the end of history as we've come to understand it, and the end of humanity uh, as we've come to understand ourselves, uh, sometime in the next 30 years, and maybe it'll be longer, maybe it'll be 130, I don't know, but uh, sometime in the not-too-distant future, humanity as a whole is going to be confronted with uh, these, plus many, many other uh, enormous, uh, I'm going to call them catastrophes, or potential catastrophes. That's right, and so Prometheism is an attempt to develop an ethos that could act as the basis for a uh, political constitution capable of enduring these converging catastrophes and guiding us into a positively post-human future. And, you know, we're, we're going to have a conversation uh, soon about the archetype of Prometheus and, you know, what it would mean to forge a society in the image of that archetype and so forth. But... Uh, my point about, you know, the end of humanity, the end of history, and the end of reality is that it is it's bringing us uh, to where it's a survival imperative for us to develop a kind of global ethos, one that's relevant to all of humanity, one that is sufficiently universal, that will allow us to successfully navigate the uh, challenges of the technological singularity. Well, Jason, at this point, I want to bring up uh, one thing. You've been identified with the alt-right, uh, with extreme right-wing movements a moment ago, though you were speaking, I think, uh, with some positive uh, feeling towards the uh, aspirations of Karl Marx for, uh, I think, a more authentic communism. Uh, do you want to clarify in any way uh, what Prometheism is? Prometheism is in relationship to our conventional uh, uh, binary ways of viewing politics? Well, that's a, a very complex and, you know, uh, uh, question that would require a vast answer, and I think it's more relevant to our, to our uh, future discussion about Prometheus, but I'll say a few things about it, just in terms of what we've been discussing, um, you know, with a view to the, the challenges posed, posed by Grin Technologies or by time travel and, you know, coming face-to-face -face with the possibility that we're living in some kind of a programmable universe, these various 
Convergent Advancements in Technology. Threaten every traditional institution in all human societies. So, uh, you know, the nuclear family, um, patriarchy, uh, the idea of personal property, uh, even privacy are all challenged by these technologies. And so I think that the evolutionary task that we're faced with, the uh, challenge to um, successfully navigate an evolutionary leap that's presented to us by these technologies, calls for a kind of transformation of human personality and society that is at least as radical as what Marx was envisioning when he imagined the total overcoming of alienation, uh, the end of the family, the abolition of private property, um, and the, the uh, irrelevance of the state as it has been conceived throughout the course of human history. So in a lot of ways, my thinking in Prometheism is at least as radically left as it uh, incorporates any ideas relevant to the right. But there's a question of the immediate socio-political navigation uh, of the challenges posed by these technologies in terms of public policy, in terms of confronting other uh, cultures and countries that could uh, misappropriate these technologies in ways that would be um, degrading to human existence, that could uh, that could uh, result in a, uh, a inhuman uh, degradation of our existence. And so, you know, I think that um, we need to think beyond categories like. Uh, liberal democracy, like uh, representative government in general, rethink the relationship between uh, cor corporations and, uh, you know, their various uh, research and development programs and the government, in other words, rethink the relationship between the public and private spheres, uh, on the way to uh, shepherding humanity through this uh, evolutionary revolution. And so, so uh, to, to summarize that, the prospect of, of uh, post-human future that we're faced with is uh, one that will require transformations that uh, I think have been more adequately contemplated by people in the history of, of uh, leftist thought. Um, they are uh, revolutionary changes that I think advocates of tradition and defenders of, of traditional structures of society would feel most threatened by. But on the other hand, some of the mechanisms that are going to be required on a socio-political level in order to guarantee security and maintain order during this transition are uh, forms of organization and, and methods that are often associated with right-wing ideologies and governance. So, my thinking is, is very much beyond the polarity of left and right in a way that, you know, let's say uh, FM Esfandiari's thinking, FM 2030's thinking was when he talked about, you know, up-wingers, people who are neither left-wingers nor right-wingers, but are calling for the upward ascension of humanity into a post-human state of being. And uh, I, I'm very much um, forwarding that call for a futurist politics 
that is beyond the traditional binaries of, of left-right uh, sociopolitical thought. Well, Jason Reza Giorgiani, once again, an incredibly stimulating conversation. I'm delighted to have had this time with you. Uh, I'm also looking forward to our uh, next discussion where we'll get into more the ethos of Prometheism. Jason, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you, Jeffrey. It's been a pleasure. I look forward to our next conversation. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.